Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we have Dr. Eric Gardner. He teaches at Saginaw Valley State University in the English department, as it happens. Um, Eric is a distinguished scholar of 19th century African-American literature. He received his BA at Illinois Wesleyan University and his PhD at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Today we'll be talking to him about his book, Jenny Carter, A Black Journalist of the Early West. I really enjoyed reading the book, um, and I admire the book very much because Eric did something that um, any historian should admire, and that is he discovered something that really wasn't known, and that is uh, both the literary contributions of Jenny Carter and her identity. So as I said, I really enjoyed talking to Eric, and I hope you enjoy listening to us. Here's the interview. Hi, Eric. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing all right. I've got a little bit of a cold, but I'll try not to be too squeaky oh, for you. Oh, you really? So. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> um, today we have Eric Gardner with us, uh, and he has um, edited a new book on Jenny Carter uh, with the subtitle, A Black Journalist in the Early West. It's a fascinating book. Um, I've had a chance to read it, and um, my research assistants and I had a, had a really excellent discussion about it yesterday, so I'm really looking forward to talking about the book. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about Eric. Eric, why don't you fill us in a little bit on your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, and so on and so forth. Well, I'm an Illinoisan by birth, um, and I think I was uh, one of always those, those, uh, those, those geeky kids that loved story uh, in all its forms, and so that took uh, certainly the form of, of reading voraciously all the way through, but it also took a form of uh, listening to stories that uh, family members told, and mm-hmm. I think also a, a sort of uh, a really early deep interest in uh, uh, genealogy, which I, I know lots of academics sort of consider that a weird stepchild of history. Uh, I don't know. I, used to, but, I was going to uh, say, <laughs> I, I just a, a little bit of a plug here. I, um, I Back in the late 90s when the internet broke, I taught a genealogy class at at, mm-hmm. Actually, at Harvard, because they mm-hmm. wouldn't let me mm-hmm. teach it in the history department, so I had to teach it in the mm-hmm. extension school. Oh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> it was indeed. one of my most popular classes. People loved it. <laughs> well, because so it, I'm I with mean, you there. Allows, yeah, it allows you to really think about uh, uh, people that are connected to you directly Absolutely. as being participants in you know a broader world. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I think that that uh, you know that sense of, of, of finding out people's stories um, and, and thinking about how stories work to convey information and to preserve memory uh, and to construct memory uh, uh, shaped a lot of uh, uh, um, my, my work all the way through. I did my undergraduate at uh, Illinois Wesleyan, which is a, a small uh-huh. liberal arts sure. school in, in, in Illinois, and. Uh, um, you know, couldn't decide, and so I ended up uh, uh, taking a major in English, but then doing uh, two minors, which was sort of unheard of there, uh, a minor in history and a minor in American studies, uh-huh. um, because uh, uh, blissfully they were willing to, you know, let me indulge all of those passions and, 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 and put them together. That's what liberal, uh, and, that's, uh, that's what liberal arts colleges are for. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm, you know, major proponent of that. I uh, went to one, too. I knew what you were talking about, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, 
from 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 there, I uh, went and did. I went to uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and uh-huh. did my master's and doctorate degrees both there. Oh, really? Um, okay. And again, had the you know the the wonderful uh, chance to not only fall in with a group of literary scholars who were deeply, deeply interested in uh, thinking about literature as as not only happening in a historical moment, but as being an agent for historical change. Uh, Nina Bain was my uh, dissertation director, and mm-hmm. she's uh, a general editor of the, the Norton Anthologies of American Literature, and has done okay. a, a great deal of recovery work on uh, women writers of the 19th century. Um, and, and so uh, we, we worked together for fairly closely. The other nice thing about Illinois was that uh, it was very much... Uh, um, if you know uh, um, the uh, 19th century uh, 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 writer Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, discussion of, uh, of what a university should be, he uh-huh. talks about uh, bringing these luminaries from everywhere and that the university is this uh, place of concentrated fire. Uh-huh. Um, and so Illinois was a place where I could go and listen to lectures in the history department from uh, scholars like Vernon Burton, um, but also I could go to the library school and talk with uh, bibliographers and book historians like Donald Crummel and art historians. And, and think about how all of those things were working together, even as I was, you know, focusing very much on on, on literature. Um, and I think I, I, I sort of came to African American studies uh, specifically through some of that work. I, I, I knew that I wanted to work in a field of literature uh, uh, that would uh, where where those uh, you know those interests and where those abilities would would uh, help further knowledge. Uh, and it didn't seem like uh, uh, for me that uh, writing the 500th interpretation of Moby Dick would be the <laughs> you know the contribution that I could make. Um, but but uh, uh, but you know with with a lot of the women writers that uh, that uh, Nina was working with, um, and then especially it, it turned out with a lot of the African American writers. Um, you know, you know, we weren't. Uh, suddenly, we weren't talking about what Herman Melville had for breakfast on the morning that he wrote <laughs> Chapter Fifty. You know, we were talking about uh, uh, well, when was this person born? Uh, you know, what was their parentage? Uh, right. You know, really basic, yeah. basic right. information. Uh, and and um, I did. Uh, some, some early work, and it actually ended up being my, my first published piece, uh, a piece for the New England Quarterly that uh, looked at Harriet Wilson's uh, 1859 book, Arneg, and uh, tracked down extant copies, uh, looked at them for marginal notations and especially ownership markings, records of provenance, trying to trace who the original uh, book buyers were uh-huh. uh, to get a sense of uh, uh, um, where that book might have ended up, uh, uh, what the audience might have been. Um, and, and that you know, again, uh, sort of weaving together of, of uh, certainly historical works, some genealog- genealogical work, uh, um, and also thinking about literary text in terms of author and audience and uh, intent and those kinds of questions. Uh-huh. Um, and from there, uh, um, you know, that that I think uh, really sort of kicked kicked into gear the sense that uh, well, you know. It, it really was a viable possibility, and it really would make a useful contribution to uh, uh, to the dialogue to think about, uh, um, you know, going out and finding more, uh, you know, looking for more information on authors, trying to find out uh, uh, some of the things that we were missing, uh, and really in, in lots of ways, uh, Jenny Carter is about uh, getting a body of texts that uh, maybe – Ten of us had read yeah. um, out to you know a, a much broader range of people. Well, I think you make a very good point about the tension in all of the humanities and perhaps the social sciences. If history is a social science, I don't know. Um, between uh, the pull of the established and wanting to interpret it, and the um, kind of urge to find the new. And I know that historians feel this all the time because on the one hand, we uh, read about the same. People, um, I, I guess in the case of, uh, to use a 19th century American analogy, uh, it's always another book about Lincoln, 
We know so much about we know more about Lincoln than Lincoln knew about Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there there are so many books published on Lincoln every year that uh, it, cert- it 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 boggles the mind. <laughs> N- none of them really uncover anything new. They just reinterpret something that was discovered probably in the late 19th or early 20th century about Lincoln. Sure. No new caches of letters, so on and so forth. But then on the other hand, you know, there are all these books, and they tend to be uh, not widely read uh, because they don't have a lot of name recognition. That is, the people about which they write don't have a lot of name recognition. And, and uh, you know, I, th- I think people don't understand the contribution that is made when you uncover somebody who at the moment might not seem to be very important, but in fact was at the time in which they were writing or acting. And I think that's the case with Jenny Carter. That's why I found it so impressive is that, you know, unlike many people in English, uh, you have uh, uncovered something that was heretofore unknown. And that's a, that's a huge contribution. You, you should be congratulated for it. I mean, it is so often the case that you're you're absolutely right. It's a funny analogy, um, you know, that you do try to figure out what Melville was having for breakfast before he wrote the fourth chapter of Moby Dick. Not that anybody really reads Moby Dick very often, anyway. But yeah. Oh no, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. I still don't think that. I have a running joke with. I have a running joke with one of my colleagues. We'll start off emails with, uh, you know, scrambled eggs and toast. Um, because yeah, right. you know uh, that must be what Melville had for breakfast that day. Right. But uh, uh, um, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I certainly think that that there's you know, uh, uh, um, gosh, a, a lot more out there than than we might be led to believe. Oh no, and I'm sure of that. Yeah, you know, this is certainly true. I think in, in 19th century uh, African American literary study, because of the 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 structure of you know the academic institution as a uh, as a social structure. Uh, you know, just kick those texts out for ages, yeah. um, and and you know, libraries didn't collect them. And uh, of course, with with somebody like Carter, we're talking about publications mainly in the black press. And yeah. What do you do with a newspaper when you're done with it? Um, you know. So, but it's funny so, you, so, you mentioned you mentioned the library school at, at Champaign Urbana, and that, that's a very <laughs> famous one, obviously. But I was going to say, you know, if you just look through, and I and I've done this before and been kind of amazed. If you just look through the, uh, they don't have the card catalog anymore. But when they had it, if you just file through the card catalog of one of these great you know, libraries that was started in the 19th century, great university libraries, one of these big land-grant universities, you find things in your field that you never heard of. That's right. No, that That's just right. nobody has looked at for a hundred years, and each one of them is, could be a gold mine. You just don't know. But some careful yeah. bibliographer in the 19th century said this is worth having, and we're going to yeah. get you know it's a print run of 200, and we're going to get one of the copies. All the other ones are gone, and there it is. But because we're so busy with Melville, nobody ever pays any attention to those things. And it is you happened. know, yeah. and the, it is kind of difficult. You know, if if your if your object is to get a, an academic job, which is no easy trick, um, then studying very obscure people probably isn't the best way to go. So that, that's an additional part of the tension that we were talking about before. So absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So it really is. It really is a you know, it, it really is a. It's a. It's a difficult thing to negotiate whether you should go and find out something new, mine some archive that's never been looked at before, work on an author who's incredibly obscure by our lights, or go for the, you know. Foucault on Melville, or what it would be, you know. I mean, there's a lot of that going around. At least there was when sure, I was in sure, graduate sure. school. Foucault sure. on Lincoln. Well, you know, and 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 when I did, uh, um, you know, way back when I did the dissertation, it was, uh, 
it was uh, it was centered around Harriet Beecher Stowe, yep. um, and and you know brought in Frederick Douglass, and so here you've got uh, uh, probably the most important white abolitionist novelist Stowe, yep. um, you know writing Little Tom's Cabin and writing uh, uh, then a variety of other texts that are anti-slavery, and you've got Frederick Douglass, probably the most prominent black abolitionist of the period, and certainly one of the most important to uh, to African American letters, letters, and and, and yep. so uh, you know I wanted to shoot for those you know those 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 major figures in the dissertation, and it was it was fun and it was. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think uh, worthwhile for me to to, to learn through, but um, it, in the end, it was not that was not the kind of contribution that I thought that I that I that I should be making. Right. I mean, uh, in, the, in the publishing trade, we call that a good commercial hook. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, somewhere along the line, it uh, uh, you know, I think it, I think it must have worked in in, in uh, some regard. I was lucky enough to to get a tenure track job yeah. and, and you know to have that at at a, at a place that uh, I've really really grown to love in lots of ways uh, but but uh, but it was you know it it, it wasn't is it's, it's uh, you know a teaching center job and and so uh-huh. the heavy teaching load and uh, now some fair amount of administrative responsibilities I threw those you know threw myself into those things with uh, with a passion and just sort of assumed that uh, you know I'd continue this digging on the uh, you know on the side and uh, just just sort of for fun uh, and then Oh gosh! I probably probably about six years ago, a couple of things happened. Uh, one was that, uh, you know, as posts would come up on listservs, or as I would be in conversation with folks at conferences, uh, uh, a topic would come up, and I would say, oh, you know, I got a couple of things in my files about about that. Let me, right. you know, let me send you some of my notes, and 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 you could, you know, you can use them. And some of those folks would come back and say, you know, you ought to get this out. You ought to share this more formally. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, second thing that that, that happened. Uh, uh, you know, totally unrelated to uh, the academy, but uh, uh, also deeply related to the academy. Uh, we, we, uh, our, our, our twin girls were born. Uh, oh, terrific! Uh, um, and uh, and when you have uh, when you have any baby, but uh, especially two, um, you suddenly become a lot more efficient yeah. and you get a lot less sleep. Uh, and so Tell between, me about between it. Those, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so between those two things, um, and also there has been within African American studies over the past decade a, a, a real concentrated attention to going back into all sorts of archives and, and, and thinking about establishing some of those kinds of sources that have been around for years in other fields um, but that are lacking. And so I, I, you know, probably one of the most exciting uh, events, I think, easily in the decade, maybe in the century, is the publication of the African American National Biography because, you know, suddenly we have thousands of biographical entries yeah. on folks that uh, aren't mentioned anyplace else at all. No, those, um, are, those are absolutely terrific resources, and the people that put them together are kind of unsung heroes. I mean, yeah. they go along with reference librarians. Uh, in yes. my book, as you know, they really do the fundamental research in the humanities. These are the people that put it together, and then yes. everything that we do is built on what they do. I I, right. I, compl- I completely agree with that, that, that. That these are remarkable resources, and they really are the bedrocks of of humanities scholarship. Without these things, we could not work. So and kudos to those know, people. Yeah, yeah, and I mean because it because it does allow then so much other work to take place. Yeah, no, uh, right. because because suddenly you don't have. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you've uh, uh, followed the, the 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 drama. It's been been a little more than a year ago about uh, Emma Dedham Kelly Hawkins, who was uh, widely known as uh, within especially within uh, literary study as being one of the earliest African American uh, women novelists. She published a couple of novels in the 1890s, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, before uh, some recent discovery. There were some that actually argued that she was the first 
woman African-American novelist because uh, her novel, uh, well, her first novel came out in 1891, which is the year before Iola Leroy, uh, Frances Harper's novel that came out in 92. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, even after she was displaced, it was recognized that she was uh, a, a key early uh, black woman novelist. And, and her work was always really difficult for folks to, to, to think about because there were no black characters, no black subjects at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were, you know, all these are, uh, you know, very white, in quote, stories. Fascinating. Um, and uh, uh, I, there was also no real biographical material on her, and folks had been stumped for ages. She had been uh, listed in uh, just about all of the prominent bibliographies starting in the 1950s of African American lit, and uh, uh, was you know her books were included. Uh, uh, Oxford did uh, a 40-volume set of uh, Black women's 19th-century writing in, in, mm-hmm. in the late 80s, and they were included there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we come to find out through the work of uh, uh, a couple of scholars, including a very skilled genealogist, that uh, Emma Dunham Kelly Hawkins is not black; she's white. Yeah. Um, her inclusion in this, you know, biography, uh, bibliography in the 1950s is erroneous, and it's one of those sort of crucial errors that starts off, you know, that cascades um, and leads to everybody making those kinds of assumptions. What a remarkable um, story. You know, and and so you know, so what do you do now that you know I based I based my reading of 19th century African American right. literature on this you know on this uh, 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 on this this you know this pair of texts uh, right. by a woman who, you know, never, you know, never even uh, uh, claimed uh, um, you know claimed that race, um, and and certainly uh, you know for six generations of her family wasn't of that of that race. I don't I don't um, mean to digress, but could you explain to uh, to me especially, but also our listeners, exactly how this mistake came to be made if she never claimed to be black? I wish I could tell you for certain. <laughs> okay, um, go ahead, guess. I, I mean, I can, I can, I, I, and I can't, I can't explain the original mistake. Uh-huh. Um, but because uh, the bibliographer who includes the work, um, Evelyn Whiteman, uh, uh, who does some bibliographies of African American literature in the 1950s, is is uh, actually very good and is one of those uh, um, wonderful archivists who. Saved things that otherwise would have been thrown out, yeah. and so some of the you know base bibliographic scholarship that folks work from, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do things right. had he not done that. But but for some baffling reason, he included uh, uh, um, Emma Dunn Kelly Hawkins' books there, huh. uh, and so that bibliography then is cited by just about everybody subsequent to that. Right. Um, and then the other sort of interesting wrinkle is that one of the books has a frontispiece portrait of Kelly Hawkins. And um, it's uh, one of those, you know, uh, black and white photographs of the 1890s, where the lighting and tinting is always kind of funny, uh-huh. and she's uh, she looks a little dark, uh-huh. uh, and so folks began then to read that visual image as, oh, okay, she's a light-skinned black woman. That is um, amazing. And of course, of course, she's in, you know, she's in uh, Whiteman's bio- bibliography, and she's in all of these other bibliographies, so that must be the way that we have to read the photograph. And uh, so between those two pieces, uh, I think folks then, you know, just sort of built on those assumptions. This... Again, you know, the, how essential it is to, uh, uh, you know, to have that, that base scholarship That's amazing. before we do the other stuff. I, I confess I wear my ignorance on my sleeve, so um, I had not heard about this at all. Has this been covered in the press in any way? Has anyone written it, a popular a, article about a, this? It has a bit there. Uh, uh, it uh, it uh, was in the Boston Globe. It made it to uh, NPR uh-huh. um, and a couple okay. of places like that. But, yeah. uh, uh, but, but you know, there, there are still, uh, you know, for example, websites that my students, uh, you know, will bring in. That's sure. the, you know, that's the list her as, uh, you know, here's this African-American author. Right. Well, 
So, amazing. so yeah, yeah, amazing yeah, story. No, yeah. I see just what you mean. No, I actually wrote early in my career a bibliography, a book-length bibliography of incredibly obscure accounts of Russia in the 16th mm -hmm. and 17th century, and I can tell you with great assurance that it is full of errors. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's a warning to anybody that uses. Well, I know we're all imperfect. I think. Yeah, it's yeah, full of mistakes. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I just didn't know. I mean, you know, because I was relying on other people. It kind of indicates the amount of trust that you have to put in your sources. Because I was just trusting these sources and saying, well, if it was written by this person, you know, then it's probably correct. So I'll put it in my bibliography and I simply copy it. And you can see how errors get passed on in that way mm -hmm. through that device mm -hmm. of trust. Yeah, that, that's quite a remarkable story. Well, I anyway, also, I also, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I was going to say, I also think that, I think it talks a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe about how we talk about scholarship, because, uh, you know, I, I tell that story to my students, and uh, um, their immediate response is, uh, you know, gasp, did you write something assuming that she was, uh, you know, African-American? Did, you know, what happens to a critic that uh, that right. made that assumption? Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, their, their first response is, uh, you know, oh, I'd be so embarrassed, I'd be, uh, you know, so ashamed. Right. Um, but but uh, I think the neat thing that, 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 that they then begin to recognize is that, Working on mistakes, moving knowledge forward, is what scholarship ought to be doing. Right. Uh, right and yeah. and so we don't want to take you know we don't want to take any of those kinds of things as gospel. We want to you know trace them back and 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 examine them closely, um, recognizing that they're a step in this ongoing dialogue. Um, so I you know I think if we learn anything from you know that fascinating <laughs> story of Emma Dunn and Kelly Hawkins, it's that you know don't don't assume, um, you know build from the dialogue and and recognize that you're going to make those mistakes along the line and that that helps the scholarly dialogue hopefully. So. I'm I'm reminded of the words of uh, Ronald Reagan, who was not a great literary scholar or historian, but did come up with a very pithy phrase in this regard, trust but verify. That's what he was all about, trust but verify. Yeah, no, Ronald Reagan, yes, great man there. Um, well, let's turn uh, to Jenny Carter then. Um, can you set the scene a little bit uh, for Jenny Carter? In other words, well, I guess what I'd like you to do first of all is, how do you encounter Jenny Carter? Where did you first well, find her? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the first thing to say is that I, I didn't encounter Jenny Carter. I, I, uh, I read some columns by uh, a, a, a pen named Semper Fidelis in The Elevator, which is a newspaper that was published in, black newspaper in San Francisco that was published uh, uh, beginning right after the Civil War and running into the 1880s. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'd always sort of been, you know, interested in the, 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 the columns of Semper Fidelis because they're, they're lively and engaging and, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, they've got a little bit of sass to them, um, and they certainly uh, speak directly to covering African Americans in a really unexpected place, San Francisco, in, in the Reconstruction. Um, and there are <clears throat> a couple of other folks who have, who had, uh, you know, read the columns and and, and used them in other sources. Uh, Mitch Kashoon, in his uh, really fine book uh, uh, on Black Emancipation celebrations, <clears throat> quotes a couple of Emperor uh, Fidelis's columns. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, just a minute. no problem. <clears throat> but, uh, um, you know, I, I think I sort of just left it at that because tracking down a pen name, uh, especially in the 19th century, is, is uh, oftentimes uh, fraught with all sorts of difficulties. Yeah, that's tough work. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and on another project, uh, totally unrelated, I was going through the Christian Recorder, which is the newspaper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, it's published out of Philadelphia, and, and it's... Uh, uh, it, it, it began uh, fairly contemporary with the elevator, although it's actually still published today. Uh, and so I was going through issues of the Christian Recorder from the late 1860s and early 1870s on uh, a different project, and uh, just doing a page-by-page -page reading, mm -hmm. and uh, saw a column 
signed by Semper Fidelis that stylistically uh, was uh, uh, very, very consonant with the kinds of things that I remembered reading in the elevator and sort of filed it away and said, oh, you know, okay, if I ever find uh, you know, anything more on Semper Fidelis in addition to the elevator stuff that we know about, there's, you know, there's a piece in the recorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll go back and look at that. Um, but uh, then as I was paging through... Uh, you know, continuing to go through the the, the issues, uh, uh, the recorder would regularly advertise its next volume year because they wanted to try and uh, convince folks to file annual subscriptions, mm-hmm. and so they would uh, list the authors that were going to contribute. And they, um, in that sort of long listing, they promised more work by Semper Fidelis, oh. and then below it said Mrs. D.D. Carter, Nevada City, California. Oh. Uh, and so I fell out of my chair just about, um, you know, because, oh, okay. Um, and then, the, you know, then the question became, okay, so who's Mrs. Dee Dee Carter? Is she the same Semper Fidelis uh, writing for the recorder as is writing, you know, writing for the uh, elevator? Uh, can we go beyond the stylistic similarities and, you know, get some, uh, some hardcore verifiable biographical information from enough source, enough different kinds of sources so that we know? Right. Um, and, right. and, uh, so that you know that set off that that uh, you know the large scale digging for uh, uh, you know finding the identity of Mrs. Dee Dee Carter, making sure that she was indeed the contributor not only to the recorder but also to the elevator, and then trying to find more about her. Um, but I think in some ways it's, it's really sort of uh, you know it's a fitting testament to to, to her work that uh, that that reading her columns when I didn't have a clue of who she was. Those columns still stuck in my head, huh. um, and and you know the name was there, um, and so it was you know a sort of combination of uh, uh, just incredibly dumb luck, uh, good dumb luck, um, but also that that you know her work had been had made a strong enough impression on me mm-hmm. to to sit in my mind and and allow me to <clears throat> to make that kind of connection. That's a so. terri- that's a, that's absolutely a terrific story. I mean that kind of discovery really makes the kind of hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I've had a couple of moments like that in my own research career, but just a couple. But when they happen and you see it, you do just about fall out of your chair. You just yeah, can't believe yeah. your good luck because that's really what it is. I mean, for all that we work very hard and we do work very hard, um, those moments are few and far between and largely a result of chance. But when they happen, they really make it all worthwhile to use a kind of shop boring cliche. So then tell us about Jenny Carter. What were you able to find out about her? Can you give us uh, her biography? Or as much of it as possible. I, I, I give you a piece. Okay. Um, uh, uh, but but again, it's you know uh, uh, so emblematic of uh, 19th century Amer- African American literary study that there are some some big gaps there. Um, uh, as far as we can tell, she's born in about 1830, uh, give or take a year. Uh, I don't know a birthplace yet. Um, possibilities include uh, 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 everything from New York State to uh, to New Orleans, and the first uh, uh, 30 plus years of her life are are really still uh, um, still very much uh, 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 a significant mystery. Uh, uh, she talks a little bit about them in her columns. Um, she talks about being in a range of different places, uh, New York, New Orleans, uh, some time in Illinois, some time in Kentucky. Um, and you were able to find her you were able to find her in censuses in both New York and in um, I, somebody I was, by I, that name. No. No, no, nothing. Oh, really? uh, okay. Nothing, nothing good yet. Okay. Um, she, she, and so you know, again, that the, you know, the sense that uh, uh, before I wanted to make those assertions, I wanted to be able to verify them huh. in a range yeah. of different sources, not just you know, not just sure. because you know, she's writing under a pen name, and occasionally she will create 
a persona that surrounds <clears throat> that pen name. And in, in addition to Semper Fidelis, she wrote under Mrs. Joan Trask and Jay Trask, Mrs. Trask, a variety of different. Uh, mm-hmm. And and sometimes those those uh, pen names become sort of characters, and so you want to make sure that she's not just telling a fictional story or a slightly fictional story. Sure. Um, and and so she talks about you know being in those places, and she also talks about uh, uh, being a school teacher. Uh, talks about uh, uh, her reading and her a little bit about her early education, not too specific, mm-hmm. um, but not a great deal. She doesn't come into focus until uh, late 1866 when she marries uh, Dennis Drummond Carter, uh, and. Um, uh, German Carter is a, a, a fascinating uh, guy in his own right. He uh, um, grew up in uh, uh, free African American in Philadelphia, although uh, his uh, mother and he had uh, immigrated from the South uh, uh, when he was a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became a quite a noted musician, and he toured with uh, Frank Johnson's band. Frank Johnson was uh, this wonderful African-American band leader in, uh, in Philadelphia in the uh, uh, 1830s, um, nationally known and, and, and uh, uh, you know, quite, quite remarkable. Uh, but uh, Dennis Carter, like more than a thousand of his fellows, um, three African-Americans in the North, uh, 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 did what uh, lots of other uh, folks in the States did in the late 40s and early 50s when uh, uh, gold is discovered in California. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, well, maybe. Uh, and so uh, Carter goes uh, goes west and uh, works as a miner for a while. By the time he marries Jenny Carter, he's back to uh, working as a musician and teaching music because, mm-hmm. of course, uh, 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 the service industries and communities grow once there are a critical mass of people in sure. California. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, um, they marry in, in late 1866, and uh, it's only a year after that uh, uh, a woman calling herself Ann J. Trask sends a letter to the San Francisco elevator uh, and you know, explains to the, uh, uh, the editor, Philip Bell, who's another fascinating mm-hmm. story, um, explains to, to Bell that uh, you know, now that the paper is uh, circulating among African Americans in, you know, in, the, in the state, uh, that there should be some regular feature for children. And she suggests that she would send him a weekly uh, uh, piece of uh, uh, short fiction or prose or uh, you know, maybe even poems uh, that were specifically designed for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and begins, and her initial, her couple, first couple pieces in early eight, uh, in, uh, 1867 um, are very much uh, uh, um, stories that are designed for children. Mm-hmm. And she writes uh, one about mistakes, actually titled Mistakes. Uh, and at the end of it, she sort of steps back and says, uh, "Oh well, you know, I see that I've made a mistake myself. It's, a, it's a num- you know another of the un- uncountable ones. Um, I started off writing for children, and I've ended up writing for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really the sort of moment where she begins to broaden the focus of her columns. And so, over the next uh, seven years or so, um, and I say that because uh, 1874 is a moment when the elevator, uh, the extant copies of the elevator just aren't there. Mm. Uh, I know she was writing after 1874, but I haven't been able to find any of those pieces. Mm. Um, but uh, up to 1874, between 67 and 74, she writes uh, over 70 pieces mm-hmm. for this black newspaper in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they range incredibly widely in terms of topics. There are you know, certainly... Uh, some more stories for children and, 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 you know, things that are didactic designed to give a moral lesson. But there is also commentary on California politics, on the ways in which uh, Reconstruction is uh, taking shape, on uh, black male suffrage, on the possibility of women's suffrage. She writes about temperance. Mm-hmm. She writes about uh, higher education, uh, you know, just a full range mm-hmm. of issues. And um, in this period, 
the, the late 60s is when she uh, sends one of her pieces to the Christian Recorder, mm-hmm. um, and then they um, unmask her. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, they, she only publishes one of the pieces in the Recorder. Uh, um, and I, I, my gut is that uh, they had that piece before they ran her name and that she chose not to send them anything oh, I see. else. Yeah, I see. Uh, but, uh, you know, after that, the, the secret is sort of out. And so in the early 1870s, and especially... 73 and 74, uh, you'll see the elevator occasionally refer to Semper Fidelis as Mrs. Dee Dee Carter. Um, uh-huh. and, and so the, you know, the, the elevator is then at that point sort of willing to uh, uh, admit her identity. Um, but the, I guess the set of fascinating things are, are that um, I, I, the first is that uh, she's actually not living in San Francisco all of this time. Dennis Carter settles in a small town named Nevada City, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is uh, uh, now maybe 45 minutes drive from uh, from Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a relatively small black community, but it has ties to the larger communities in Sacramento and especially San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so through Carter, we're not only getting a, a sense of, of, of black California, but we're getting this, uh, uh, you know, again, a voice that, that, that we really don't often hear, this, this small town in California, relatively mm-hmm. small black community. Um, and it also becomes clear that uh, folks in, in the town and in the area eventually know who she is, mm-hmm. because, of course, the elevator is uh, um, not just a San Francisco paper for African Americans. It really becomes and tries to be uh, an African American paper for the West. And mm-hmm. so it has correspondence in British Columbia, it has correspondence in Idaho, correspondence in New Mexico, New Mexico um, correspondence mm-hmm. in Nevada, you know, really uh, a, a wide range of black news in the West. Um, and those folks then are all reading Jenny Carter, and 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 she's reading the kinds of things that are going on there. Yeah, um, I think I think it's you, a, I think it's important to say. Sorry to interrupt. I think it's important to say, oh, okay. if I understand correctly, that this elevator is not a device that is designed to take people up to the top of tall buildings. This, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that this is, I mean, is this this means to elevate the race, as I'm. It, it, it does, but it, but I think it. Uh, I think even there, you have to uh, uh, suggest that race has uh, has two meanings. Certainly, it talks about elevating the African American race. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know the paper very much focuses on that specific community. Uh-huh. But uh, again and again, uh, uh, Bell or Carter or some, you know some of the other writers uh, will remind folks that we're also talking about elevating the human race. I see. Um, okay. That uh, you know the white folks ought to be reading this and right. ought to be recognizing the things yeah, that no. that we're doing right and, and do them too. So. so. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah uh, I mean, it's also, I think, a play on the current technology because that's uh, something that is just coming to the public notice. Yep. Uh, uh, Otis's elevator, uh, you know, has, uh, you know, made its splash. And the first uh, the first elevator is installed in San Francisco about at that time. Oh, is that right? So, yeah, that's interesting. So, so what? Yeah, so there's a... I was going to say, could you tell us a little bit about the black press in general? Because I think one of the things that people have forgotten, and I know that I, I don't really have a very great awareness of it, is that, in fact, at at this time and and for many decades thereafter there was an entire black press establishment and every major city had a black paper or many black papers in some cases yeah sometimes more yeah 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 i i mean uh, the antebellum period we see a, a number of startup efforts that last for a year two years really beginning with uh, freedom's journal which is a new york city paper published in 1827 and 1828 uh, but uh, 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 you know and there are there are sort of sporadic black papers in the pre-Civil War period, um, but oftentimes they are fraught with economic difficulties, but also they have trouble getting readership because there are better funded white papers right. that have the abolitionist viewpoint and do cover the black, you know, black community like, like uh, Garrison's 
uh, William Lloyd Garrison's Boston paper, The Liberator, yeah, the Liberator. which is really a national paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a- after the Civil War, things changed significantly because in addition to uh, the sense that uh, uh, the black polity may be actually invested with some rights of citizenship, you also have uh, a number of entities uh, thinking about, okay, well, what do we do with this massive new freed population? Uh, because we have to uh, think about getting them basic literacy skills, but we also have to think about getting them a public voice. Mm-hmm. And so you see um, papers like the... Uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church's Christian Recorder really become not just a church organ, but a national paper trying to, uh, uh, um, you know, spread church values. Mm-hmm. And so you see recorder writers among the teachers that go out uh, uh, and teach for the Freedmen's Bureau, which uh-huh. is a, you know, sort of massive government uh, uh, effort to, uh, you know, to think about what to do with the, the newly freed folks. Um, and you see the recorder being used as uh, uh, as a literacy text, right? Let's learn mm-hmm. to read, and we'll learn to read using the recorder. You also see lots of black papers spring up uh, across the Reconstruction South as uh, African Americans gain that sort of uh, uh, you know public presence and become involved in legislative affairs, mm-hmm. and especially in some of the larger uh, urban communities in the North. You see again the sense of, of, of you know a community coalescing and, and needing that kind of voice, and so there are a, a large large number of papers in the second half of the 19th century uh, that are black owned, mm-hmm. black run, largely written by black folks, and largely designed to be read specifically by black folks. And yep. the elevator, uh, you know, sits in sits in that group. It's actually it's uh, connected to another black paper in San Francisco, the Pacific Appeal, for a little while, and then separates off. But uh, uh, the root of those was uh, a statewide convention of African-American leaders that said, we need a newspaper. We need some way to uh, uh, cover the community and to share news and to, uh, you know, publicly debate questions. And uh, uh, in in that, the elevator's uh, a lot like... uh, you know, much much later papers like the Indianapolis Freeman or uh, mm-hmm. like the Chicago Defender in the 20th century, uh, uh, but but it's a real rich range of of, uh, of discussion of, of the community by the community, uh, and it's also something unfortunately that uh, um, until very recently has been widely ignored. Yeah, I think it has uh, actually. It, yeah. It's interesting because I was listening to a of all things I was listening to a story about coverage of the Iraq War. And they interviewed a guy who writes for, and I don't know what the name of the paper is, but he writes for a black paper in Philadelphia. And I thought to myself, a black paper in Philadelphia? There are still black papers? Who knew about yeah. this? You know, yeah. I mean, I knew, yeah. I kind yeah. of vaguely knew that there used to be them, but I just was, I just somehow forgotten it. But this, this was kind of a huge establishment at the time. I mean, there was yeah. every reasonably sized black community had one, or as I say, more. So how big, how big was the uh, African American community in San Francisco at the time? It's a little tough to say because racial classification gets uh, uh, a little sticky, um, especially when light-skinned folks go to a place thousands of miles from where anybody knows them. Sure. Um, so, um, but but uh, um, in terms of uh, you know we're, we're never talking uh, uh, above the low thousands, mm-hmm. one or two thousand. Yeah. Um, and the elevator circulation uh, in terms of paid subscribers never passes eight hundred. Uh-huh. Uh, but again, uh, that 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 in some ways is is you know much much more significant than than you would expect because uh, uh, when you have uh, one person with a newspaper, uh, how many people share that newspaper? Yeah, how sure. many people does she read it to? Sure. Uh, you know those those kinds of things. So so the senses and and the the funny thing. I guess one of the funny things, I, something that I didn't know, um, is that, that I had always 
followed the sort of set assumption uh, that you can see in in uh, um, a great deal, uh, you know, a great deal of the history that's been written is this emphasis on uh, free African Americans uh, clustering around urban centers mm-hmm. um, in the north, uh, um, and that's not really the case actually anywhere, but it's not the case in California. There are, uh, you know, lots of these small little communities like the one in Nevada City, yeah. uh, like one in the neighboring Grass Valley. And and so they view the San Francisco community, which, you know, if you say it's a thousand people, that, that still sounds fairly small, but that becomes a sort of hub of all of these African-Americans in smaller, smaller communities, uh, uh, you know, around the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have deep connections with uh, uh, communities in Los Angeles and San Jose, you know, connections with the uh, communities in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amazing thing about the black press that, again, I don't think lots of folks uh, uh, know about or have really studied is that they're, they're participating in that 19th century trend of uh, um, regular 19th century practice of newspaper exchange. And so they'll send free copies of the elevator out to any newspaper that will send them back. Huh. Uh, and, and Bell, who's, this, uh, who's a long-established journalist uh, uh, within the black community, uh, um, understands this process and so is sending out the elevator to the Christian recorder and the Cincinnati Colored Citizen and getting uh-huh. then copies of these papers back. They're publishing excerpts, um, and so you can read the Christian recorder and see little items that have been clipped out of the elevator and uh-huh. vice versa. Um, but also then those newspapers are sitting around Bell's office, uh-huh. and his writers are reading them. And so there really becomes... The sense that the black press might be might be a vehicle for fostering a broader national dialogue uh-huh. between African Americans who are really scattered all over uh-huh. the nation. Uh-huh. I see. Could you tell us a little bit more about Philip Bell then, who hired Jenny Carter eventually? I yeah. don't know if "hired" yeah. is the right um, verb for that, but um, <laughs> took her work. Was she was yeah, ever paid? Yeah. Was she was she ever paid for any of this? I don't. You know, I I don't think so um, because Bell was always running on a shoestring. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, uh, and and uh, sometimes had. Uh, Troublemaking rent. Yeah, no, I was, I was. Newspaper then did so. A newspaper editor once told me that the best way to run a newspaper is not pay the writers. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the surest uh, followed, road. Followed by not paying the rent. Yeah, yeah surest yeah, road yeah, to profitability. Yeah. Don't pay the writers. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah tell yeah. us a little about Philip Bell. Well, Bell actually uh, uh, is a New Yorker by by birth and uh, becomes, and he's a free African-American, becomes active in the black press incredibly early. He works with uh, a paper published out of New York City called The Colored American um, in the 1830s, uh, which is really, uh, I mean, that's, you know, again, in that sort of pre-Bellum period where there just aren't a lot of black newspapers. And so The Colored American really is is a landmark in lots of different ways. Um, And at that point, he's networking with a number of leaders in the broader African-American community, so he's networking with uh, Charles Ray, who's active uh, uh, in a variety of different venues. Uh, um, he knows Frederick Douglass. Uh, he knows uh, William Wells Brown, a range of these folks. And uh, even after the Colored American uh, folds, he continues to write for some of the other sort of freestanding black papers. Uh, he writes occasionally for the White Liberator, um, but he also publishes things in the Christian Recorder and in Frederick Douglass's various newspapers. Uh, and he runs uh, he runs an information office. That's actually what 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 they call it uh, um, in in New York City. And and the information office is a sort of combination news service, job placement service. So folks who wanted uh, uh, you know ten waiters uh, for a, for a you know a party would uh, call Bell, and he would you know go out into the community and 
and you know recruit ten good waiters. And, uh-huh. and uh, um, but also it, it sounds like because he was so then connected with uh, so much of the community that uh, those information offices became became sites of uh, of black resistance, okay. uh, aiding fugitive slaves, okay. uh, doing doing a range of different kinds of things. Um, and he's sort of recruited to go west and help with the Pacific Appeal when it's uh, uh, being built uh, in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, and he works with the Appeal for a while, has a major falling out with the editor there, and uh, in 1865 starts up his own his own venture, The Elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the next two and a half decades, uh, Philip Bell really is the elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he makes sure that funds come in. He uh, uh, he harasses uh, leaders of the community or encourages them or you know entices <laughs> them all sorts of things to you know to make sure that he can uh, you know get money to get this out there. Um, and he uh, sets up a network of uh, subscription agents across the Black West, um, uh, uh, even in uh, um, uh, uh, even uh, uh, in the the, the sort of so far west that it's uh, that it's far east because uh, he has connections with black expatriate communities in Japan and China and so uh-huh. uh, um, so he's got uh-huh. subscription agent, he's got subscription agent in Japan for a while um, but he's he's, uh, he's all about getting the elevator out there um, and uh, uh, really becomes in some significant ways uh, an institution when he dies one of the San Francisco white papers talks about <clears throat> that, that this is a guy uh, and first I think it's notable that that, that he's uh, eulogized in the white press um, at the time and not you know not ignored as so many of the african-american leaders you know were consciously ignored let's leave them out yeah. um, San Francisco uh, white paper uh, uh, writes about him as being this man who would uh, be walking along the street in a very dignified manner but if he began talking with you uh, or if you began talking with him he would argue with you about anything <laughs> <laughs> and never let you win that sounds like um, a lot of editors I know so, yeah 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 and and so Bell really sees himself as being you know this this uh, uh, you know that we've got to get the paper out because the paper uh, uh, is the community. It, it, it you know, it is yep. the, the the multiple voices of the community. Uh-huh. Um, and so he and he and uh, uh, Carter actually have a, a, a pretty fascinating relationship. It's clear that they become friends over the years, uh, and it's possible that uh, uh, Bell actually knew Dennis Drummond Carter before Jenny Carter started sending him stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, um, he's also. <laughs> Pretty definite on his sense of uh, of uh, what gender should look like, mm-hmm. um, what women should do and should not do, um, and uh, uh, then ironically uh, uh, he becomes an advocate for uh, women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jenny Carter is actually opposed is that to women's right? suffrage. She is because. Uh, um, and, and most of it comes from uh, uh, um, there's a, a fairly significant schism that happens when uh, uh, there's a move to enfranchise African-American men uh, because, uh, uh, of course, a number of white women suffragettes who have suffer- suffragist activists have been, uh, you know, active in the abolitionist movement yeah. all the way through and say, well, you know, why not us too? Right. Um, uh, uh, and then, in addition to that very valid claim, some of those folks, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, hook up with uh, a guy named George Francis Train who is an incredible racist. Yeah. Um, and so some of the arguments over, you know, that they advanced during the late 60s are, you know, well, you, why do you want to give uh, a vote to these people um, when you're not, uh, you know, giving them to, you know, smart white women? Right. And so there's a real rift. And uh, Carter identifies with... 
she she identifies racially at that moment, um, and so she argues for African American men getting the vote, mm-hmm. uh, um, and then you know that we'll we'll deal with uh, Frances Harper, uh, another black activist, woman activist of the time, says uh, that she'll let the she'll set the lesser question of sex aside mm-hmm. for the time, um, and and so Carter comes out and says no to, to, to women's suffrage because she is so vehemently arguing for black male suffrage uh-huh. first. Yeah. Um, but Bell disagrees with her, and so they back and forth on uh, on that in, in, in pretty lively ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that, that too is emblematic of the black press of the period. It's not univocal. There are lots of mm-hmm. rich arguments, and you really mm-hmm. get to see people trying to figure out complex issues and disagreeing with each other and bringing in personal stuff, too. Uh, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, even though it's really clear that he and Carter disagree on a couple of these key issues. Mm-hmm. She continues to send stuff to him. He continues to publish it. Mm-hmm. And was the normal modus operandi for her simply to send things over the transom and for him to publish them? He didn't make assignments to her, did he? Or do we know about that? <sighs> We don't know about it definitively. Given the, the character and the voice in most of the pieces, um, I, I, I would hazard to guess that most of them come from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, for example, when she travels, uh, uh, she, there's a, uh, an extended trip that she takes to San Francisco uh, early in her writing career, and then also uh, late in her writing career, uh, she takes an extended trip to uh, Carson City uh-huh. and uh, uh, the city surrounding there. And at those moments, it's very, very clear that Bell has consciously said, I want you to write about what you think of the black community here. I want you to report back. Uh-huh. I want you to see what's going on. Um, so there was that that kind of exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the pieces, and, and I think it's also probably important to point out that uh, um, the newspapers of the period in general, and black newspapers especially, um, aren't the kind of... Uh, like industrial uh, uh, things that we see now, um, you know, and, and so you see stories and poems and personal essays and a real wide range of genres and topics uh-huh. uh, um, in these. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we sort of struggled over the, the title of the book. Is, is, is Jenny Carter a black journalist? Well, she does do some things that we would think of in contemporary terms as a journalist. That is, she goes to events and she reports on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also a political commentator, a moral commentator, mm-hmm. um, a good storyteller. Uh, you know, some of the pieces are fiction. She writes occasionally, sends in a poem for her weekly contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, there are real, you know, a real wide range of, of, of different kinds of texts. Um, and, and a lot of those texts that fall outside of the realm of, uh, uh, you know, of reporting on events, it's pretty clear those are the things that she's thinking about and the mm-hmm. things that she wants to share or wants mm-hmm. to talk about. And so those are very much, uh, uh, you know, self texts that are motivated by, uh, by something, you know, that, that's, that's in herself. Why, why do you think that Jenny Carter wrote? I, I know that's a tough I, question. I, it's not really. And you know, this is, this is always right. The, the biographer's struggle is right. Getting in somebody's head um, and wondering, you know, what, what was the motivation? Um, especially when there's so much information about her that we don't know. Yep. Um, you know, I wish I knew her favorite color. You know, it's a little, little bit like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think I think part of the yeah I know I, I think part of the answer has to be uh, um, seen in her choice of pseudonyms because when she chooses Semper Fidelis, this is before John Philip Sousa and before the Marines uh, and before that term has the kind of resonance that it might in oh. today's popular culture, right? Um, when when uh, 19th century readers see Semper Fidelis, they don't immediately think Marine Semper Fi. 
they probably are thinking the Latin root, which is always faithful. Mm-hmm. And her idea then uh, is, is that it is a gesture of faith in the community for the community to get that voice out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's you know, writing to report things that might not otherwise be reported. Mm-hmm. She's writing about topics that she thinks need to be discussed but might not otherwise mm-hmm. be discussed. So she writes, for example, one of her early pieces for children is actually about color prejudice within the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very clear mm-hmm. that she recognizes that this isn't something that we talk about in public spheres often, but why we need to, right? Um, and, and so the sense is that by getting her voice out there, she is being always faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, so I think I think it's very much that sort of communitarian ethos that she's mm-hmm. hoping that if she gets this stuff out there, uh, that it will make some kind of change happen. That uh, uh, people will hear it and say, "Oh, you know," and maybe agree and maybe not, but but will you know sort of push people to be involved and to think about the mm-hmm. issues. I see. I see. Uh, yeah, I, that, that's a, that's convincing. I think Semper Fidelis is is a telling pseudonym to choose. There's no question about that. Now, Anne Trask, where did that come from? I wish I knew. <laughs> I looked that up in the phone book. And, and, and it's, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's quite funny because uh, uh, I, I certainly, you know, have some grounds to speculate that Jenny may be short for Joan, uh-huh. um, uh, uh, um, uh, which is, you know, Joe Ann Trask or Joan Trask uh, uh-huh. sometimes also appears, or Ann J. Trask. Um, and she also, when she uh, is writing as Mrs. Trask, she writes about Mr. Trask, and she gives Mr. Trask the first name Darby, which, of course, shares the first letter with her husband, Dennis yeah. Carter, and it's uh-huh. very, very clear in her writing that Mr. Trask is Dennis Carter because she jokes about his musical instruments being left everywhere around the house. Uh-huh. Dennis Carter, of course, is a music teacher. Uh-huh. Um, and and uh, so it's clear that she sort of picked picked that D word to, you know, to, to as you know, a sort of inside joke. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, where the Trask comes from, I don't have the faintest idea yet. Okay. Um, and how that name came about, I, I don't know. Yet. Okay. What, what do you think that Jenny Carter's place will be in 19th century letters or 19th century African-American letters? Well, or goodness, should I, it be? Should it be? I, I, I guess I would say first that I hope it goes more broadly than that um, because I, I – I, um, there are certainly a number of rich comparisons that we could make to African-American writers of the period. I think a logical you know, connection and somebody wonderful to read next to her are the work of Frances Helen Watkins Harper, who writes a group of serialized novels for the Christian Recorder, uh, eventually publishes a novel in book form later, writes poems, uh, cross, crisscrosses the country doing lectures on temperance and, and uh, talks about questions of suffrage. So, you know, somebody, you know, comparing her with somebody like Harper or somebody like uh, Douglas in his older years, because of course Douglas is, is still you know engaged in uh, a national scheme at this time. I, you know I think that that, that she in some ways uh, uh, you know speaks in rich ways to thinking about those folks as participants in a much larger literate culture. Uh-huh. Um, but but beyond that, um, the fact that she chooses the short form and that uh, she does so much with the short form um, makes me think that, that, you know, we ought to also be setting her next to people like Mark Twain or uh-huh. Bret Hart, mm-hmm. who are also, uh, you know, writing out of this short, initially, out of this short sketch tradition, mm-hmm. uh, very much grounded in the West, and, and for both of them, very specifically in California. Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody like Fanny Fern, mm-hmm. uh, um, the, you know, noted uh, columnist in, in, in the East, uh, Sarah Parton Willis. Um, and, and, um, 
you know, so, so I think putting her in dialogue with this idea of what to do with the short form, what to do with the press essay, uh, um, or, you know, the piece that appears in the newspaper or the magazine, uh, in broader American letters mm-hmm. would, would, you know, would, would be equally valuable. And that's something that we haven't talked a lot about. Literary study oftentimes tends to focus on the bound book. Mm-hmm. Um, a sort of weird uh, corollary to the Academy's obsession with the monograph. Um, You know, it's got to be bound in covers. And a a lot of black writing was not that way. A lot of women's writing, white and black, was was not that way, at least first. Um, And a lot of white men's writing of the period wasn't that way either. Mm -hmm. And so getting a broader sense of of all of this, uh, you know, this textual culture um, that that we, you know, finally get to see on a national level with, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, everything changing from the structure of the printing press uh, to uh, distribution networks, uh, uh, you know, putting her there and saying, oh, well, I wonder... You know, if we set her next to Mark Twain, I wonder what happens. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so hopefully, hopefully that too. Um, and and also, I think uh, uh, you know, beyond those pieces, I uh, uh, you know, of, of, of sort of you know, placing her in the moment and, and in dialogue with folks. Um, I, I hope first and foremost that folks just uh, see her as the lively voice that she is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm still. Uh, um, you know, I, I'm still stunned by uh, uh, probably my favorite of the columns is uh, she writes a column uh, about uh, in, in childhood, Dennis Drummond Carter was uh, separated from uh, one of his cousins, Henry Drummond. Mm-hmm. Um, and Henry Drummond is, uh, uh, is uh, an orphan uh, at that point. His parents have died, and uh, so he is uh, bound out. Um, and in essence, uh, uh, if you're a free African American child and you're bound out and you don't have uh, a fine family that's well, com- you know, well positioned to fight for you, so he's a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, she writes this uh, very very touching column about uh, the love between Dennis and his cousin Henry, uh-huh. um, and 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 ends it with uh, the plea that you know if Henry Drummond is out there and reads this, or if you know Henry Drummond, please write us because I know that. Uh, uh-huh. uh, um, you know, my my husband would would shed those same tears that he yeah. shed as a boy when when they were separated. Wow. Um, and that's in that's in so many ways. Uh, you know, if you look at black newspapers after uh, uh, after the Civil War, all the way up until the 1890s, uh, across the board, you'll see these information wanted ads um, mm. that you know say seeking information on Jane, who was owned by Henry Smith of Acomac County, Virginia. Please send information to um, because you know uh, you think about it. If if you're uh, you know if you've just been freed, the first thing you're going to do is try and find your family if yeah. you've been separated. Yeah. Um, and and all of those little information wanted paragraphs that are, you know, one or two lines long, I, I think don't get read um, and don't get recognized for the, you know, the kind of emotional power that they pack. Exactly. Except Carter exactly. says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an information one of that, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and I'm going to do it in a narrative form, and I'm going to let you know a little bit about the people that are involved in this. And, and to be able to take that, you know, that kind of event that lots of folks have ignored and to tell the story around it and through telling that story get folks to understand and get folks to think about it mm-hmm. uh, um, that's the kind of thing that she's doing and, and so that's the you know that's what I want folks to you know folks to recognize that that is remarkable that is such a such an interesting point you just made about these um, 
advertisements for people's lost relatives. That, that really is, it's, it's again, it's one of these things that I, I kind of knew about, but I had just forgotten. Yeah, I know that I know that it was the case that in the Soviet Union and also in Germany after the war, because so many people were lost, that yeah. uh, people would p- put placards everywhere and would stand mm-hmm. at train stations and, and put one hand in papers and so on and so forth looking for their lost relatives who'd been lost during the war. But it, it is a very poignant thing, and it is an extraordinarily good idea for a literary essay. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we should thank Jenny Carter for writing it. And we should thank you, because we've taken up so much of your morning. I bet those twins want you. So, uh, <laughs> They're doing pretty cool. It's yeah. all, it's safe. That's the only reason why we've had a fully quiet hour. Exactly. Uh, 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 but, but, but thank you, too. It's been wonderful. Yeah, so why don't, you, um, why don't you close just by telling us what you're working on right now? Lots of different things. Uh, um, I, I want to do, of course, more work on Jenny Carter because there's that 30 years uh-huh. uh, uh, that is that is empty um, so far, and, and uh, there's got to be something else out there. Um, but I'm also doing some broader work on the black press, uh, some more work on the elevator, trying to track some other folks down, and also uh, working with a variety of other black periodicals that, again, have have been largely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, a piece that, that uh, just came out um, uh, um, that, that uh, talks about uh, some work uh, from uh, a periodical that was published out of Indianapolis, Indiana, mm-hmm. in uh, uh, the late 1850s called the Repository of Religion of Literature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who thinks about the fact that there's this quarterly black magazine being published out of Indianapolis' black community yeah. before the Civil War? Um, and the, pieces that, uh, the piece that, the piece that uh, just came out um, is uh, a couple of works by uh, early black activist Mariah Stewart, who uh-huh. everybody thought wasn't writing at all in the 50s and 60s. And it turns out well, she sent this material to this uh, black magazine in, in Indianapolis, of all places. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, trying to <clears throat> sketch out what the broader landscape of African-American letters looks like, uh, tracing uh, uh, literary communities mm-hmm. in all of these different unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Um, Digging in the archive and, uh, uh, you know, trying to bring up some good stuff to share with folks. Well, it sounds like you got a full plate with the twins <laughs> with these Always projects fun. and everything else. It wouldn't happen any other way. Well, Eric, thank you very, very much for writing this book and for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Gardner, the author of Jenny Carter, a black journalist of the early West. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History, and we hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.